Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This is a Manhattan-bound B Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Hello, I'm John Lynch, and this is Skylines, the Cinemetric Podcast. One of the more exciting phenomenons of the last couple of years, you know, not not exciting in the literal sense, but exciting in the sense of, you know, if you're the sort of person who gets really nerdy about housing policy, which I'm assuming if you're listening to this, you probably are. One of the most exciting things that's happened in the last couple of years is the emergence of the YIMBY phenomenon. As you'll probably be well aware, like NIMBY stands for not in my backyard. So I'll, I'll leave it to you guys to work out for yourselves what YIMBY stands for. But we've got two prominent campaigners from Britain's fledgling YIMBY community with us today who are going to talk about what it means and how we're going to fix the housing crisis. Do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. So I'm John Myers and uh, I'm a co-founder of London YIMBY and also of the Umbrella YIMBY Alliance campaign. Uh, hello, I'm Sam Watling. I'm the founder of Brighton YIMBY and also a member of the YIMBY Alliance campaign. Okay, let's start with let's start with the basics. As I as I said, you can probably even if you're not familiar with all this, you can probably just about work out that YIMBY stands for yes in my backyard. What does that actually mean? What are you? What what are the YIMBY campaigns are all about? What are you trying to do? We're basically trying to end the housing crisis over time with the support of local people. We're aiming to provide a positive voice to actually get plentiful housing built, which is just so desperately needed. That surely sounds like where we are already, doesn't it? I mean, like communities surely want want houses for their their members. Like sure, surely they can't be opposing it at the moment. I think you, we must be living in different countries, John. That's not been my experience. I mean, <laughs> it, it actually does depend. You know, you can find places where people will speak up in favour of affordable housing for for the local people to meet their local needs, and then often you'll find that's then blocked by the county or somebody else. So there's a whole layer of different levels of nimbyism, if you like. Yes, uh, lots of people, I think, are pro-housing in the abstract, but most of the time when something's actually proposed, someone will oppose it. And the trouble is, you know, the, the, the people who are most opposed tend to be the people who live nearby, who are worried about the effect it'll have on their lives, on the character of the neighbourhood, on the, th- the way things look. They tend to be homeowners, they tend to be very vocal, and they vote more. So, yeah, there's an obvious sort of insider-outsider thing going on here, right, where, like, the people who oppose housing tend to be rich and rooted and focused on particular places, whereas the people who would benefit from it are much poorer and more diffuse, basically. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a problem that's grown over time. You know, back in the 1950s, it was much easier to get housing built because far fewer people were homeowners. And so there was a real national consensus. I mean, the political parties were competing on how many houses they could get built and actually really doing it, which is just marked difference to today. Mm. So why do you think we need specific 
campaigns for, for things like Yimby? Why, why can we not leave this in the hands of, I don't know, people like Shelter? We've had them on the podcast before. Why, why are the housing charities not sort of fulfilling this role? Well, the Shelter are doing great work. And don't, we're not certainly not criticising Shelter in any way. What we're trying to do is unite all of the different voices that we can possibly find and bring them together in one strong coalition, the way that's being done very effectively in California at the moment, where you're seeing groups from all across the political spectrum, renters groups, construction groups, senior citizens groups, environmental groups, all united behind the Yimby banner, pushing for more housing construction. And we think that's the only way the problems are only ever going to get addressed here. So does the movement have its origins in, in the US? Is that where it's kind of inspired by? Well, it started in Sweden, actually, and then I think it was Yimby and Sim City at some point. But uh, it really kicked off in California, and that's where it seems to have made the most difference so far. I mean, presumably that's because, as I understand it, the Bay Area has about the most expensive housing on the planet, doesn't it? Is that, is that the reason behind this? Pretty much. I mean, you know, London is, is up there, actually. The problem with the Bay Area is it's a very, very wide area of just utterly unaffordable housing, whereas London does tend to be more expensive in the centre and it, it gets slightly less excruciatingly expensive as you, as you go out. But if you look at the UK as a whole, the UK has about the biggest housing problem in the world. OK, let's just, obviously, you know, the whole name Yimbyism is kind of clearly set up in opposition to something that already exists. Sam, you have strong views about this. Who is the enemy? I, I, I wouldn't say there are enemies per that's not, se. That's not the tone I get from the blog you've written for us. Thing. Come on, but, but, don't, don't hold back. But there are certain people who deny that there is a housing shortage, I think, are top on my list. First of all, I personally was infuriated by the attitude of certain members of the campaign to protect rural England. And, so, and their local groups when they were blocking social housing in Brighton. That annoyed me uh, greatly. But also the second enemy, per se, is also we've been talking about housing problems for well, 50 years almost caused by, you know, suboptimal planning. And people need to focus on, you know, things that do work and that are politically feasible within the short to medium term rather than, you know, just effectively venting or suggesting unicorn policy ideas that don't work. That, that, that can also be a hindrance to pro-housing movements. So are you saying that the other enemy is just, you know, feasibility, basically? I wouldn't necessarily say feasibility because we do have to test all these ideas out. But the difference is people who will shoot down other pro-housing ideas because they believe that their idea of increasing housing supply is the only way. Mm. I, I've written articles on the TCPA, I think do this. But it's it, the Town and County, uh, Country, Country Planning, Planning Association. Association. Yeah. But for example, um, in California, you often get arguments about, you know, which type of housing to build. And you often get the situation of market urbanists trying to block social housing and um, people who are pro-social housing trying to block market housing. And that's something we should not really be doing. It does feel a little bit like there might be parallels with the Brexit phenomenon here, but we won't, we won't <laughs> get into that now. Let's stick with the CPRE because we love shouting about them. Like, what what's the problem with having a campaign group that's all about like defending the countryside? Why is that in opposition to house building necessarily? Well, I mean, look, the CPRE is one of the most successful organisations in England. I mean, you can sort of compare it to the National Rifle Association and how effective it's been in achieving its aim. The Green Belt has grown massively since the creation of the CPRE, and they've succeeded in their primary objective of not getting houses built on the Green Belt. Now, there are, other, there are plenty of ways to build more homes, right? We can easily densify existing cities. I mean, you could easily treble the number of homes in London alone. I think easily um, is, is possibly a misleading uh, adjective. Fair enough, right. you're right. From a, from a purely practical 
putting bricks on the ground perspective, it's very easy to do. Politically, that's much harder. But you know, so, so, but C, what CPRE has done is is close off one of the two ways that it's we can practically get houses built. And so I don't think anyone in the YIMBY movement is saying we shouldn't protect some of the countryside, we shouldn't protect beautiful areas of the countryside. I think that there's a, there may be a lot of difference between how much of it we should protect and perhaps there are a few percent of not particularly attractive or useful greenbelt that we could allocate for more homes, especially if they're next to tube stations. I mean, we are we're a complete outlier in having urban growth boundaries that protect the land next to public transit. That you know, Most mm. other countries would just think that was hilarious, that we would even conceive of doing that. There is that stretch of the central line on the eastern edge of London where on the western side of the line it's all houses and on the eastern side it's fields. Exactly. And you know it's crazy. It, it's just it, it's not that anybody planned it that way. It's simply that in nineteen thirty nine when the music stopped, they hadn't built on the other side of the tube line. And so there's no reason you could why you couldn't have a win win deal where you could turn some of those inaccessible fields probably covered with rapeseed or some equivalent pesticide spray crop and pesticides as you know are the number one airborne killer of city dwellers in Europe you know turn some of that into parks and have some of the rest of it be housing I mean also um, you know when we think of um, you know people wanting to protect the countryside it's not necessarily clear whether having you know fields instead of you know well-planned housing with large amounts of open space is necessarily better. There is a quite severe housing shortage in the countryside, which does affect, you know, maybe not the members of the CPRE, but at least people they know. And there are bargains to be done. I mean, the old CPRE, you know, would be, was very receptive to those kind of things and were very good at pre- pressing for new towns. But sadly, that has stopped. And I think that we need to find more ways in which rural housing and suburban housing can be built with local consent. But, you know, regrettably, if, you know, people are just, or an organisation is being a negative force, and, you know, despite the fact that CPRE has a rather large amount of data on rural preferences, not really putting that to use, then that is not particularly helpful for anyone. I mean, we should move on from CPR in a second, but why do you think they have ended up in this position where they are essentially oppositional to house building? What what changed in that attitude? I mean, I, I think there's a nuance. You know, I think if you talk to the, the officials in London, they're bright, they're well-meaning people, and they genuinely believe that we need to build more housing. And so they're sort of trapped because a lot of their sort of rank-and-file members, it's an organisation which has a lot of independence, and so the, the, the local branches are often very opposed to more housing where they particularly are, and the national organisation might be much more open-minded about it, And so, but they have a huge problem in finding things that they can actually push through and that they can get the rest of the organisation to support. There's, there's a real distinction there. It's very interesting. Please mind the gap between the train and the platform. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Okay, well, let's let's kind of move on and let's start talking about solutions. Like, okay, first off, like how, given that nimbyism is a very widespread phenomenon, right? Like a lot of communities, as we've discussed already, do not necessarily want to build more houses and they can't see the benefit of it. Particularly, they just see the, the disruption and the, the extra pressure on services and so on and so on and so on. How do you get community support for, for the sort of development that will benefit the country as a whole? Well, wait, the way we look at it you know, is that actually people are very often willing to be YIMBY if you give them a sensible reason why their community is going to benefit from it. And so partly this sort of opposition is just a function of the way that we do things. And, you know, I had a conversation with an official from an Oxfordshire District Council a few weeks ago who was spitting blood because all of the villagers, or many of the villages in their district, were trying to approve houses next to the village, trying to allocate sites next to the village, which was contrary to the council policy, and mainly because the villages had some arrangement in most cases by which that would benefit the community. So if you enable local people to actually have a sensible conversation with the landowner and say, right, well, if, you, if we let you do that, what will you do for us? Will you give us a new village hall? Will you give us you know, funding to keep the school going? Whatever it may be, then it's much easier to get support. Hmm. Sam, what's your take on this? Yeah, I, I think that, that when the original planning system was put up in 1947, they weren't dealing with lots of issues of, you know, collective urban resources. We had grammar schools rather than schools allocated by house. We didn't have a problem with parking and houses were worth far less. So they weren't dealing with these issues. And as a result of that, we haven't really moved on to find ways to um, correctly allocate um, these resources in the planning system and enable communities to get what, you know, what we would consider win-win solutions in which um, local residents can really feel the benefit of building. Is local authority finance structures that exciting topic? Is that, a fun- <laughs> is that an issue here? Because as I understand it, if Sometimes if you get development in an area, it lumbers the council and thus the community with a bunch of costs, but the benefits tend to flow up to the treasury. Yeah, absolutely. Is stuff like that an issue? Yeah, it's a huge problem, and we do it far worse than, than many other countries. Look at Switzerland, for example, where there are very clear reasons for local authorities to approve more housing, and they do at a ma- massive scale. The, the trouble is, you know, people have proposed ways to reform that. It often gets blocked by one or another interest group in this country who don't want to see the current system change. So, so yeah, definitely that's a way forward. I also think that... Um, that, that may give a reason for the council to be more pro-development, but um, we also do need to look right at the neighbourhood level and see, and at the local residents themselves, because ultimately, you know, councillors are just the elective representatives of neighbourhood groups. And I mean, that is why potentially 
aspects of neighbourhood planning can be quite useful if it is done in the right way and allows the benefits of new development to flow to local communities. So what does neighbourhood planning mean in this context? Well, so um, Sam's talking about the regime that was introduced by the Localism Act 2011, which allows parishes to come up with a a neighbourhood plan of their own, which has equivalent standing to the local authorities' plan, and that that plan, the neighbourhood plan, is then used in determining planning position permissions and the uh, parish can also grant what's called a neighbourhood development order so they can actually themselves grant permission for more houses if they want to. And then there's an equivalent in cities which wasn't frankly as carefully thought through, it was sort of glommed on. And so in places which don't have a parish council they can set up what's called a neighbourhood forum, try and define what the right area is for that neighbourhood forum and then they can have all the powers um, in neighbourhood planning that the parishes have and then of course the trouble is in cities is where do you draw those lines, how big are they going to be and often they're 5,000 people and you know I can't get a committee of 12 to agree on something so getting 5,000 people to agree on something is much harder and there are very few neighbourhood plans that have been created in cities just because it's so complicated. But, but the point here is that it's a mechanism for turning something that is being done to the community into something that is being done by the community. Is exactly, that, yeah, yeah, sorry, thank okay. you. Let's, let's ask a big question. How are we going to fix the housing crisis? Like, what do we actually need to do? I don't think anyone's pretending we can fix it overnight. But it, it seems... 48 hours, OK? We'll do our best, John. It seems pretty clear that... I mean, we, we've literally got stacks and stacks of reports for the last 50 years of ideas that people have sort of thrown out, none of which have ever got adopted, because if you go and talk to the relevant politicians, they will say, well, the backlash would have been horrible. And so if you don't find something that's going to be reasonably politically popular, that, you know that the locals can put up with, it's just not going to happen. And then you look at the fact that there are just incredible sort of win-win solutions where we build lots more housing and it makes the locals better off. And frankly, in many places, it makes it the, the place look better and be more walkable and pleasant at the same time. So we've got to go, we think, in the direction of processes that allow local people to get involved and benefit from it. One specific thing we put out is that there's a large area of many cities including London where you can you could densify near public transport you could take semi-detached houses and put in terraces or mansion blocks of five to six stories and you can often literally get five times the amount of housing on that on that plot if you do that if you give permission for that that increases the value of the original plot for the homeowner so there are ways we think to enable that process over time and and add radically more housing near to stations in many cities across the UK. But hang on, isn't land assembly going to be an issue there? Because, maybe I'm wrong about this, but as I understand it, one of the reasons it's quite difficult to sort of change semi-detached areas into like mansion blocks or whatever is because the land ownership is fragmented. And even if, you know, half of the street wants to sell up and take the money... You only need like one or two being difficult about it to sort of make the project too too difficult to be worth bothering with, right? Like, do we? How do we get around that? Yes, that is why we propose street level voting and the option to um, allow a design code to just make it um, to make it look nicer, so the community is more pro that. The but hang on, on a more on a more fundamental level, yeah. like there is going to be a point where someone's just like, well, I like my home. I don't want to sell it. Yeah, and it's very why, politically difficult to kind of then force that, isn't absolutely. it? Absolutely, and that's why we're not suggesting anything involving sort of compulsory purchase or compulsory expropriation of, of, of people's homes. All we're suggesting is... So, so actually, it turns out the economics are such that if you have just a relatively small plot in most of... Let's take suburban London as an example, because you know, I happen to be from London, Yimby, then it's economic to densify that. The real problem is that the neighbours will scream blue murder. And so... 
the problem under the current system is that the, the neighbours don't want these plots of four or five houses to be turned into an apartment building. The council won't approve it because it frankly would radically change the character of the street and people get very upset. And there's no system right now what we, to do what we're suggesting, which is if you had a, a mini neighbourhood plan in effect, you just took a single stretch of street between two junctions and you said to the people on that street, well look, would you like the permission, not the obligation, just the permission to add more housing on each of your plots and you can discuss among yourselves and pick a design code that, that, that specifies what you want. You can have contemporary if you want, you can have Georgian, Neo-Georgian if, if that's what floats your boat. And then if two-thirds of you all agree on that, then you just get the permission to do it. It's, there's no obligation on anyone, no requirement to do anything. You can just sit on it. By the way, in many places, that permission will double the value of that home. So there's a very, very strong incentive to do it. You know, we've gone out and talked to a lot of people on this, and it's an extremely popular idea. And then, you know, when a few of them together are ready to do it, they just decide to either team up with a small builder or, frankly, just sell to a small builder. It'll probably be easier. And everyone around it can be confident that because that design code has been set, they know exactly what it's going to look like and they're going to be happy with the outcome. Does that make sense? Sure, sure. So last wonkish question, I think. We should be wrapping this up. But last wonkish question, like, do we have enough available land to meet housing demand in this country? Well, under the current system, no, absolutely not, because you know we've been under, we haven't built enough homes for 50 years, John, and we certainly haven't built enough, we've never built enough flats to, to densify the rate that we would need to do if we weren't going to take up more greenfield sites. But you know, there is, there's so much land that we could build on or that we could do better with. The vast majority of, of London, say, is one-fifth or one-tenth of the density of housing per acre of the most popular pretty central parts that people travel around the world to see. So we've got huge scope to do more with the land that we have. Yes, I, I would just say that this is not particularly a problem of planning, it's not a problem of economics, it's more a problem of politics. And, and, the, and the two main issues that you have to solve are, firstly, that you know, some politicians still want house prices to go up in the centre, and at a local level there is often opposition to all development, be it um, market rate or affordable. And until someone can solve those twin goals, then you're just going to get the same process of inertia and nimbyism that we've seen for a quite long time in our housing politics. Okay, well just as soon as we've solved the Brexit mess, we'll come <laughs> on to we'll worry about that one again. Final, final question. Do you think it's a problem for the movement that the word GMB is a bit silly? Branding is a good question. No, I think in the end it, it helps to have the recognition that this is a sort of global movement, that, that the things that are being achieved in various countries around the world, and you know, we, we, it's good to stick out slightly from, from the other campaigns out there, you know, the very serious, extremely powerful and worthy campaigns with, with uh, serious names. Why can't we have a bit of fun with it? I also think it's an important thing to have yes in my backyard because lots of the housing solutions that you often see politicians have proposed are more yes in your backyard. You know, we have, um, you know, <laughs> urban politicians and fight for... My local um, MP in Kemptown, for example, signed Siobhan McDonough's motion to um, liberalise metropolitan greenbelt restrictions in London. Right. But when it was proposed, then the council proposed uh, 200 social homes 
in his constituency. He did not support it, despite being a Labour MP. To that, let's let's name and shame us. That Lloyd, Ross, Lloyd yeah, Russell Moyle? Yes, he did not openly support it. Lloyd Russell Moyle, you're a terrible MP. You're betraying your constituents. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, we, we need to get policies that people can do in their areas without shoving it on other areas. The acid test is, you know, will people support this next to them? People are always very, often very happy with housing somewhere else, but it's always somewhere else. Okay, well, I suppose the other advantage of the word Jimby is that's excellent SEO. Exactly. All right. Sam, John, thank you both. We'll see you next time. Okay, see ya. You've been listening to Skylines, the podcast from City Metric, the New Statesman City site. It was presented and recorded by me, John Anage, and produced by Nick Hilton. You can find Skylines every two weeks on iTunes, Acast, or whatever other app you use to get your, your podcast. And while you're there... Why not leave us a nice review to, to tell other people we're here? It, you know, it really helps people discover the show. And I'm a megalomaniac, so the more people I can get listening to this, the better, really. We'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for listening. <laughs>